Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody. This is Steven Siegel, your host at the New Books Network and New Books in History. And today we're joined by Professor David R. Marples, who is a distinguished university professor of Russian and East European history at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. Uh, Professor Marples will be talking to us today about his new memoir. This is a book called Understanding Ukraine and Belarus, a memoir published by E-International Relations Publishing in 2020. David is the author of 16 single-authored books, including this one, Ukraine in Conflict, 2017, Our Glorious Past, Lukashenko's Belarus and the Great Patriotic War, 2014, and Heroes and Villains, Creating National History in Contemporary Ukraine, 2008. He's published over 100 articles in peer-reviewed journals, and he's also edited four books on nuclear power and security in the former Soviet Union, contemporary Belarus, and Ukraine. So thanks, David, for being our guest on the podcast today. That's my pleasure. I want to start um, not with a hot take on Belarus. I, I think we can talk about that later if you'd like, but with this story of you since your birth um, in 1952, what was it that motivated you to write an academic memoir? I'm not sure what the exact motivation was, but um, I was thinking during the pandemic, um, which started here in Canada, well, early March, but in, ja- in Japan, I was in Japan in February, and it started. It was already in, in effect then, and it seemed like a good time to write a memoir. I had time. Um, the university was closed. I was still on leave. I was on leave for the second six months of a year's leave, and it seemed an opportune time. I could no longer go to, to Belarus, where I had planned to go and do research. So for once, I had time on my hands, and started to write it. I mean, I didn't know whether I'd actually finish it or not, but it seemed to take on a life of its own. And before long, I had, you know, 50,000 words or so written. And then I just simply thought, well, I might as well keep going and and finish the whole thing. Although, you know, I hadn't really got a, a set structure in mind other than chronological, but um, it seemed to work out all right. It seemed to work out quite easily. And I felt generally satisfied, you know, when I when I finished it. Um, you, you know, David, from um, people who follow your work, and there are many who've tracked your career, um, both um, on Ukraine and Belarus since the since the 1980s and even before that, that, that people are curious about you, I would say, as an outsider and an insider. And for those of us who, who are practitioners in the field, we know that there's always an occupational hazard in being both insiders and, and, and outsiders. And we get asked a lot of questions about our lives, what our family background is. Um, and sometimes it seems almost like a KGB method that there's a bio- biographical and, and somehow biological inquiry into 
who we are and why we got interested in it. So how, I guess this is a long way of asking you what, what made you come to the subject of Soviet studies and, and eventually Ukraine and Belarus? Yes, uh, I think initially I was at the University of London as an undergraduate and I was studying history. I did nine courses in history. I mean, the British system is very different from the North American one. And we just do one subject area. And that for me was, was history. So you cover the whole spectrum. I did all British history from medieval times to the present, three courses on European history, a special subject on revolt to the Netherlands, and another special subject on Nazi Germany. And I was looking for the last course. And for the last course, I decided to do a course on Russian history um, in University of London at the Slavic and East European Studies Center. There were several lecturers there who offered that. And I chose that one. Um, even though uh, there were no formal lectures at, at that time, uh, Professor Martin McCauley, who was there, offered to teach that course. And I think that kind of started me off. I mean, there's a linked reason in that I was, at the time, uh, interested in, in left-wing politics. My university was in an environment where the, the British National Front was quite a prominent force. And I found myself at night having long arguments with people about politics and felt that sometimes, you know, the communist line was the safest one to take in, in terms of countering these arguments. So I was interested in communism. I was interested in left-wing politics. Um, and at the same time, I was taking this fascinating course in central London. Uh, my college, by the way, was in the Hampstead region in the northwest. So I had to travel uh, into London to, to take this course. I, of course, uh, soon got disillusioned with the Soviet style of communism. I mean, there were too many things in there that disturbed me. But nevertheless, the interest persisted. And when I got my undergraduate degree, I moved to Sheffield to work with a man called Everett Jacobs. And Everett was originally from Boston, from a Jewish family in Boston. And he'd moved to England um, to take up a job in Sheffield. And he had been looking at Moldova, or Moldavia, I think he called it then. And he was particularly interested in collective farming after World War II in Moldova. And he told me, you know, this area was very interesting. And in Ukraine, right next door, of course, it was even more fascinating. There were a lot of things going on there that needed researching. He also suggested that for, for doing a PhD, it would be better to do a topic that was not focused on Russia. He said there were too many purely Russian specialists in the UK at that time. So when I was looking for a job, it might be difficult to get one if, I, if I'd focus purely on Russia. So for those reasons, I decided to focus on Ukraine. And it didn't really make much difference in, the, in that first year because all I did was, was Russian language instruction anyway. It was sort of an intensive Russian year, uh, starting from scratch. But what it meant was that I had to pick up a Ukrainian language instructor as well. And in Sheffield, there happened to be one you know, there who was visiting from Kiev, who used to give me all the, the communist propaganda to, to translate. And that's kind of, kind of how I got started. So it's in a roundabout fashion. You know, I'd never really thought about a career in this area. And you were talking about background earlier. Uh, my background, unfortunately, is, is extremely boring. I couldn't find anything other than English in there. <laughs> Um, as, as my Ukrainian friends used to say, he doesn't have a drop of Slavic blood in him, but, you know, he's interested in this area. 
so that's that's how I got started, you know. And it's you know, irony in a way, you know, a Jewish guy from Boston teaching, suggesting I do Ukrainian history. Um, strictly speaking, it was economic and social history because that was the department I was in, and he was more inclined towards economics, I would say, than history. But yeah, that's how I got beginning. Yeah, no, that that's a great start. And I, I was thinking a lot about labor politics um, and, and the British Communist Party as well. You mentioned the far right. Do you think that your own family background, you, if I may, you do mention your descent from a family of coal miners, um, had any, I would say, any cause, I guess, was was there any reason why you drifted into labor history and labor politics and, and moved into Eastern Europe? Was there a connection from there into, into your proposed thesis on Soviet collectivization or, or was it a purely intellectual choice? Well, maybe I thought it was an intellectual choice, but, but subconsciously there could have been something there. You know, both, both my grandfathers, as you say, were, were coal miners. They both got badly injured in coal mines, at which they'd been working from the age of 12 or 13. In fact, my maternal grandfather was so badly injured, he had to stop work in his 50s. Uh, my paternal grandfather um, had been at work since about 12 or 13. He had a, a skilled labor job, so he was quite uh, employable, let's say. He had a decent wage, but he had a really rough time. And I could see all the injuries that he got and the conditions that were in place in the coal mines. And in Britain, the coal miners were increasingly militant from the 70s, maybe even late 60s, 70s. This was the time of the Heath Conservative government, and the coal miners were on strike several times in that period, a most decisive strike, I think, in around 73, 74, that actually probably brought down the Heath government. I think it was the decisive event. Um, and then later, of course, they were full-scale warfare with the Thatcher government. Uh, but that was after I'd left, I'd left the UK. So I think, yeah, there was something there. But I wasn't politically active uh, prior to university. I, I voted Labour when I could vote. Uh, but in the next election, I voted Liberal. So it wasn't like I was particularly consistent, even being in, on the left. And... And yet, you know, this, this is the area I chose to go to, the, the Soviet communism, which is the most extreme form, I would say. And, you know, was, they were, in a way, um, quite persuasive for a brief time when I, when I was naive. And um, I didn't join any political parties ever, but I was very concerned about the, about the National Front, which were openly propagating Hitler as a kind of icon. And to have some people from there in my own college was was a bit disturbing. And I reacted against something, I would say, rather than for something. You know, to me, this was obviously wrong, but I needed more ammunition. And therefore, I went the other way. Yeah, that, that's interesting. And, and I think about um, the transformation that a lot of intellectuals had in the 1970s. So uh, what I find fascinating about your memoir is, is a transformation in just a short amount of time. You talk about not leaving the UK, if I'm correct, un until really 1970, and then you discovered North America. So how, how do you measure your progress, if you can call it that, from the beginning to the end of, of the decade in the 1970s? Yeah, in 1970 itself, my geography master in my school organized a trip to Arctic Norway. And this was the first time I'd ever really left home. I was 17 at the time, 
and we went to a very distant region on the Swedish border and, and stayed upon the ice cap there for about a month and a half, I seem to remember. I don't know the exact time period now. And that was that was really enervating for me. I really enjoyed that. And it wasn't like I, I didn't like to, to move out of the house or anything like that, but I hadn't been abroad. And by 1973, um, because my girlfriend of the time was studying Spanish, I spent time in Spain. And in 74, we went on a big trip around Europe using youth hostels and, you know, living in a fairly modest, I would say, abode and with very little money. And after that, I think I kind of caught the bug. But the trip to to North America was more or less unforced by the fact that I was not allowed to go to the Soviet Union. I won a British Council scholarship to go to the Soviet Union in 1970. Six, I think it was, but I was maybe 1977, but I was not allowed to travel because my topic, Western Ukraine after World War II, was too sensitive for the Soviet side. And the way they stopped me going was simply to put some nuclear physicists on their list who they knew the British would turn down. Right. And, then they, and then they turned me down. Right. And of the six people on the British list, I was the only one who was permanently rejected and I was told I would never get there with that topic I wasn't going to change the topic so my supervisor suggested well you know in in the United States we've got more resources for Ukraine in this period than we have in Britain I mean I did try to find some contacts in Britain and I found quite a few um, at the local clubs Ukrainian clubs as you can imagine who had left after World War II who were quite willing to talk to me Uh, I also met Professor Ivan Koropetsky a professor from Temple University in Philadelphia who was staying in London by chance and agreed to see me. And we had a long chat and he said, you know, well, come on over. You can stay at my place for a while until we get you settled. And then you can go to Washington and you can, can do things more seriously. And And that worked out amazingly easily. Um, he was a wonderful host and he introduced me to a lot of people in the Ukrainian community and in the Ukrainian academic world. And after that, I simply made a list uh, of people who I needed to visit on this month-long trip to United States. Uh, sorry, four-month-long trip to United States. That would be between January and April 1978. And at that time, you could buy a, a, a Greyhound bus pass for $99. I don't know what they cost now. But I, I got one of those <laughs> and, and traveled all over the place, actually. I not only you know did academic stuff, which I put in the book, but I went yeah. to visit some friends I'd met as well. I stayed a night in Louisville, for example. Um, I went to watch a Tubes concert in Minneapolis during the, during the bus stopover. And, you know, all kinds of adventures like that. But I got yeah. around. I got around. And uh, this is how I, I kind of got started. And the Ukrainian community in Washington was amazingly hospitable, probably because they, they found someone interested in, in Ukraine, which at that yeah. time... That time was, was unusual. And in the Library of Congress, uh, Yuri Dobchansky, uh, the Slavic bibliographer, was that time about 25. He and I became good friends. And he actually would take me down to the stacks and say, find what you want and, and take as long as you want. And then you can go back to the desk and work on it. So I didn't even have to order books once I got to know him. And that made that made life much simpler. But that was the way my PhD began. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm struck, I'm struck by your mental map of North America. You, you seem to have boarded the Greyhound 
us with a mental map of the location for major scholars in the Ukrainian immigrate community and, and just like made a beeline toward them. Um, and, and that's so interesting. It's actually, for better or worse, what I tell my graduate students sometimes to do. Um, but I want to ask about some of these names and characters because you, you have such a, a, a wonderful um, insight knowledge of, of them through your first impressions. So could, could you tell us a little bit about Ivan Lysiak-Rudnitsky and um, for that matter, Manoli Lupul as well, and, and what kind of experiences you had initially with them. You mentioned how Rudnitsky introduced you to a shaggy-haired John Paul Himka, um, who, who was still in his 20s at that point, and, and you know, probably a, a Detroit um, leftist still at that moment. But, it, I mean, how, how did you then follow through and have conversations with some of these um, Ukrainian emigre figures? Well, Ivan Rudnitsky... He had invited me to to go to Edmonton while while I was on this bus trip, and I had no idea where Edmonton even was. To be perfectly frank, I didn't even know where it was. Um, I'd only seen a distant clip when some space capsule landed in in uh, Arctic Canada, and some guy was reporting from Edmonton <laughs> in a snow blizzard. And I watched that in Washington D.C., where you can imagine, you know, that I could hardly believe that that's where I was supposed to go. And Ivan picked me up uh, when I arrived in Edmonton. And he told me I could stay at his house for four days, very precise, four days. He was a small, compact little guy. Um, he had a wonderful accent, and I always wondered whether he cultivated this English accent. Uh, it was, you know, clearly intellectual, cultured accent, but at the same time, you could tell he was from Eastern Europe. And he was married to a woman called Alexandra Chernenko, who was a local poet. And she was a very... I don't know how you describe it without being rude, but a kind of pushy figure. You know, she was the one who would initiate conversations. She would demand answers to questions. Whereas Ivan was more laid back would be the word I would use. He was very quiet spoken, polite in conversation. He would draw you gradually into the things in which he was interested. And he had a fascinating range of areas that he looked at. He wasn't just a Ukrainian specialist, you know, he was interested in a thousand things, uh, a real intellectual in many ways. But like people who are so talented and of so many different diverse interests, he never focused particularly on getting stuff done. You know, he had many, many projects that he yeah. left unfinished. He, he had 2000 pages or something like that in his private writings, right? Yes, he put things into his private writings. And he'd written a book, you know, he'd written one book, but his, his sort of uh, acolyte put it together and published it. And Ivan um, worked with Lupul. Lupul was the director of the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies, which had been formed in 76. So this was March 78. So it was a relatively new institution. It was in a building called Athabasca Hall, one of the older buildings in the University of Alberta. Beautiful building. And I met them both together. I mean, I met Rudnitsky first. He took me to see Lupul. So I met him in Lupul's office. And Lupul was a very different personality. Rudnitsky was a European-born Ukrainian. Lupul was an Alberta-born Ukrainian. And there's a big difference between the two. Lupul was not a Ukrainian speaker. He was a very serious man. He, he spoke in sort of staccato language, you know, very staccato phrases, awkwardly. Didn't feel, didn't seem very comfortable 
in anybody's presence. And yet was very sincere. And Lupul was, I think, a controversial figure in the Ukrainian community because he used to get into fights with everybody about different things. But he was totally committed to the Ukrainian cause. But at the same time, he was totally committed to the Canadian one too. So the two of them combined together. He wanted a stronger Canada, but he wanted Ukrainians as part of that Canada, a very integral part of it. He felt they deserved that. They'd been there from the 1890s. They built the many of the places on the prairies and this should be recognized whereas Rudnitsky was more you know we're the cultural figures from Europe and these are these are the peasant farmers who came during the Austrian Galician period and, and stayed over uh, so there are several generations down now and Lupul was one of these who discovered he was Ukrainian he was originally called Bob you know for example discovered he was Ukrainian and started learning the language and culture it reminds me of a letter we once got to the sent to the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies from a guy in the States, actually. And he said, uh, my name is Paul Feely. I would like to learn the Ukrainian culture and language as quickly as possible. <laughs> <laughs> so that was exactly uh, how Rudnitsky looked at Lupul, I would say, at the time. I, I'm sorry, that's that's a letter that, that um, still goes around from a lot of people after Maidan. I'm a graduate student, and I'd really like to learn the Ukrainian language and culture as soon as possible. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, I I, I want to talk more about some of these characters and and their personalities. You've got James Mace, you've got Bob Magochi, um, many of them who who may not be familiar to our audience, honestly, here at New Books Network. Um, but you also had a career really as a journalist, and that developed, I, I think, out of out of Edmonton. But you ended up working for. Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty. Can you tell that story? Yeah. Um, well, what, I have to go back a little bit because I, I was going to mention that Lupul gave me a very menial position after I, I, I ended up doing a master's degree in Alberta. And, and after that, I, Lupul offered me a job. And this job was for his editorial assistant. And it was the lowest paid job in the institute, but Lupul right. wanted me to pay wages even lower than the university's minimum. I mean, he set me at ten thousand dollars, whereas the minimum at that time was fifteen thousand six hundred. So wow. he was very reluctantly had to raise the wages. But after four years, I mean, it was, it was painstaking editorial work on manuscripts written in non-native English. It was the hardest work I've ever done in my life. And after about three and a half years of this, I did start to look around. And a fellow called Roman Solchanik, another Michigan graduate, actually, was a research analyst at Radio Liberty in Munich. And he said he was looking for another position on the Ukrainian research desk. And would I be interested? So I went for an interview in Munich um, at the English Garden, where the, where the Radio Liberty and Radio Free Europe were at that time. Beautiful setting, but it was in a former psychiatric hospital. So it was a kind of strange building, hmm. uh, highly security, high security with big imposing guards at the entrance and these metal dates that clang back and forth as you went in. And then you had to go through a second security to get into the building. Um, and the security put me off a little bit, but the, the wages were astronomical by my standards at that time. And I was offered, you know, to pay my way, to take my wife and, and young son over as well, and to provide housing. I mean, everything was set up for me. So I took this job and I was... My, my position was to write Ukrainian research papers on the economy and on society 
and on energy issues because Roman Solchanik, he wrote on national question, religion. Um, he wrote on politics. Directly he, he, was, politics. He, he was a Sporluk student, right? Wasn't he a student yes, of Roman both, Sporluk? Yeah, like him, he was, he was a Sporluk student. And he was a very good scholar. Uh, no question at all. He was a very good scholar. And he, was, he read everything. He also smoked like a chimney, these camel cigarettes. So as I put in the book, the first thing I, I did when I got to the office, it was a big office in Munich, was to buy a, a massive fan and place it facing <laughs> his desk so that the smoke went back to him. But the whole room was completely full of newspapers and Ukrainian newspapers that you could order from Radio Liberty. He ordered the lot as well as all the journals and they were just piled up all around the floor. So they reached around the corner and into my area. So I started promptly filling up with, with the newspapers that I ordered and the books that I brought with me. So it was a pretty full office. And Roman was a, a brusque character. If, if you want to know what his accent was like, it's a little bit like Trump's accent. If you imagine Trump as an intellectual. <laughs> uh, I don't say he's got the politics. I, I, can't, I, I can't, David. I just can't. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's the kind of accent uh, Roman had. And... A very, very amusing guy, had a lot of stories, and a wonderful New Zealand wife who, who sort of kept him balanced, I think. You know, my family and Roman's family, and the family of Bogdan Nihilo, another figure who was there at the time, uh, came from Amnesty International and had worked to The Spectator. He was in charge of the Ukrainian, um, well, initially foreign policy, but he initially moved to the Ukrainian desk itself and became the director of the Ukrainian program. So the three of us used to hang around quite a lot, and we were all very different personalities from very different backgrounds. Although Bogdan and I had the, uh, we both we both were from Northern England, so we had that in common. But it was an interesting environment there because the, you had every nationality in the Soviet Union was represented in Radio Liberty, and they all used to have their own little cliques. Some wouldn't speak to the to the other, so they used to meet in the canteen down in the basement in the mornings and order breakfast. And some of the conversations were really, really entertaining. Uh, others I simply couldn't understand because I didn't understand what languages they were speaking. But the Poles wouldn't sit with the Russians. The Azeris wouldn't sit with the um, Armenians. And yeah. we'll be, be tied if you move the, to the wrong table because I was supposed to sit with the Ukrainians, right? Right. Uh, well, I, well, I mean, my feeling... It Correct me if I'm wrong, because this is really a generation or maybe two before me, but there were so many people who were working intelligence in that environment, both CIA and KGB. And it, it was, you you had inclinations and, and sensibilities and feelings about who, who was doing what, but did, did you actually know at this time? Because th this was around the time that you were getting involved with the whole Chernobyl um, situation. That's another story. Um, but I, really, these are two questions. I mean, one is about RFERL, and the other is about your, your um, eventual discovery of Chernobyl and how, how you got in. Yeah, I mean, I, I, w I got back to Canada before Chernobyl took place, but I was working on nuclear energy when I was at Radio Liberty. And, yeah, I would say that you had a vague idea that people might be CIA or they might be KGB. The KGB ones were much more difficult to discern. You know, and he usually found out after the fact, you know, after they defect, defected back to the Soviet Union. Then you thought, oh, well, I kind of thought he might be KGB all the time, but you actually weren't sure. Whereas the CIA were a little bit more obvious. Uh, usually they were native English speakers, for one. I wouldn't say that's always the case, but many, those that I knew were. 
uh, they were okay. I mean, it wasn't as if it was run by the CIA, and it didn't actually affect much that I wrote. I mean, the guy I, I dealt with, John Erickson, was a professor from um, Bowling Green University in, in Ohio, I think it is. And he was a really easygoing guy. He used to let you do more or less what you want. There was Keith Bush as head of the um, Radio Liberty Research Unit. Um, he was an economist, sort of Santos type guy. Uh, found him a little bit hard going at times, but um, you know he had to deal with him regularly. So it was kind of a mixture of people, um, the nationalities who worked mostly on the desk doing language stuff. They were simply translating stuff into their own language and broadcasting back. Right. And the problem for me was you couldn't really check what happened to your script once it went up, went it up to the uh, to the program desk how it was broadcast. You didn't often get copies back. And if you did, you didn't really have time to read them because you were swamped with other stuff. But I got into nuclear energy because it seemed to me something that was really growing in Ukraine. So when I got back to Canada at the end of 1985, early 1986, um, this was an area I'd covered quite a lot. So when Chernobyl happened in late April, I'd sort of got a good background. you know, And I was one of the few people in North America who who even knew where it was at the time. And even though I was relatively young, um, early 30s, I was swamped by media attention for, I would say, about a period of three to five months, somewhere around that. But especially in the period around early May to the end of June, you know, that period where it was almost constant interviews and writing editorials and and. I was persuaded, you know, to start to start my first book because of that. And the director of, of CIUS, the Institute of Ukrainian Studies, uh, was by then Bogdan Krauchenko. He'd taken over from Lupul, who'd retired. And Bogdan, another fascinating character, by the way, um, we used to call him Captain Ukraine. <laughs> and he, yeah, I could see that. Yes, he was extremely enthusiastic, and he said, "David, you got to write a book on this. You're the only one who could do this. Write a book on this." You can take all the time you want. You can give all the equipment you need. Just do it. And I had the freedom of the next three months just to do this, shut myself away and worked on stuff that many of the, many of the sources I got, Roman Solchanik was standing me from Munich. You know, he's just piling on sources. And I would use, I use these in the book as well. Yeah. So, I mean, can I, can, can I ask, so you wrote that book really pretty fast, didn't you? And I mean, in terms of the sources you used, so were there things that you would you would change or that, that you would do over if you had more time and more resources at that point? Well, I, uh, the book is mainly background. You could have called it a history of nuclear power in Ukraine, except for the last chapter where I added a bit about Chernobyl. So it was mm-hmm. a complete background book. And as such, I think it served its purpose. The problem was that I was very angry when I was writing it, and it was one of those things you get you get mad at the Soviet regime for its, for its secrecy and not telling people what was what happening sure. around them. I mean, sure. I kind of learned since that time that that's the case when there's a nuclear accident anywhere. Uh, people don't like to to tell all the information in, immediately to the pop- population around. But as a young scholar, I felt that you know I had a story to tell and it needed telling. But even though when I'd finished it, I thought I was still gathering stuff more and more and more. And I realized that I needed to do a, diff- a book that was solely on Chernobyl. And that's why I, I was working on this book that eventually got called The Social Impact of the Chernobyl Disaster. 
And I worked together with a PhD student actually from Pennsylvania, University of Pennsylvania, Lida Hepke, who was a biomedical engineer, but was fluent in, in Ukrainian and Russian. She was Ukrainian background. And she came up to Edmonton for, for a couple of months. And I had, a, I had a grant actually from the Ukrainian National Association. And it's been a critique that's been uh, sent in my direction that I took this grant because of the political nature of the organization. But I took this grant and it enabled me to hire her, you know, pay for a housing or whatever for that period. So together we went through all the sources. Right. Um, and I wrote that second book, which is a better book, I think, in every respect than the first one. But I also started going around nuclear power stations in Canada and talking to nuclear engineers at Atomic Energy of Canada about how Chernobyl had happened. And one of them wrote the introduction for that book based on the Canadian scenario at the time. But keep in mind, I've still not been to the Soviet Union because I couldn't get in. Yeah. And, and, as, a, as, yeah. A, and as a former you know, employee of Radio Liberty, it was not that easy to get in. But I asked, I asked to go. Um, but, you know, I didn't get there until to write about Chernobyl until 1989. So that was kind of late. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, how did you, we were talking a lot about Ukraine and I could ask you a hundred more questions about Ukraine and Chernobyl, but was Chernobyl the, the way or the avenue to Belarus for you? Was, was this through the Chernobyl, Children of Chernobyl Congresses? And I mean, the many, many talks that you were invited to give between say 1987 and 1991, was that how you eventually ended up in, in Minsk and in Belarus? Because, I mean, you do talk about the opposition and all of that, but uh, you didn't visit Belarus until ap- after the collapse of the Soviet Union, right? That's right. I'd been to the Soviet Union, I think, about four times by then. And always to either Moscow, Leningrad, Kiev, but I hadn't been to Belarus. And in 91, in the spring, it was the fifth anniversary of Chernobyl. And, you know, once again, I was in Washington, which seems to crop up all the time in my memoir. Um, and I was there to give talks to different institutions. And one of, I think the main one was for the Center for Strategic and International Studies at Georgetown. But I was also um, invited by an anti-nuclear group to give a talk for them. And they were really sort of hippies, bare feet, sandals type group <laughs> with uh, slogans, you know, and. I don't. I didn't put this in the book, but you know, the talk I gave for them, I was I wasn't the main speaker, but I was like the second main speaker. I, the main one was someone who was really well known in the anti nuclear world. And, but I was watching these speakers, and I noticed that you know they had to say something provocative. And here was myself with this carefully academic style speech on Chernobyl, and and um, and I realized it was not going to work. So after a while, I just got up one after another, described this nuclear plants that have been closed in the Soviet Union. And I got a standing ovation after each one I announced. You know, so this is the mm. kind of atmosphere we created. Um, and they had a reception afterwards. Now, the reception, I met some people from Belarus. And one was a guy called Yuri Pankratz. And he was with a group called Children of Chernobyl, as you mentioned. And he said, why are you writing all this stuff on Ukraine? You know, in Belarus, the impact of Chernobyl was worse. And we'd like to invite you here to our next meeting, our next conference on Belarus in April of 1992. So it would have been a year later. So that's when I I first went to to Belarus. And I went to this Children of Chernobyl Congress. And 
it was very different from Ukraine. I mean, in, in Ukraine, by this time, there was a lot of activity. There was a green world movement, anti-nuclear activity. The Rook was very prominent. Uh, Belarus was like a graveyard compared to Ukraine. I mean, nothing much was there. Very few cars on the streets, Soviet monuments everywhere. Uh, and yet, you had an independent state. You know, the state had just become independent. Stanislav Shushkevich was the chairman of the parliament. He was the main position. Uh, not very stable, but he was in the main position. So I went there before Lukashenko. And I got fascinated not only by Chernobyl, but also by the history. And that's why I wrote book. my first book was a combination of the two. It was like the history and what happened after the nuclear power accident. So I just kept going back to Belarus and I found it so interesting. And yeah. I, was so much, I was so much alone as a, as a foreign scholar there. Uh, with one exception, uh, Rainer Lindner, a guy from Germany. He of and course. We and I used to meet up there quite regularly. And he started this uh, Mint Dialogue which has become very successful. But Reiner, I think, eventually went more into the business side. Uh, yeah, he, he's, he's in business. I remember as a grad student reading his Belarus book in German and thinking, well, what has happened to him? Why is he not a, a full professor of Belarusian history somewhere? But I, I was also naive at that moment in the late 90s and early 2010s. I, I had thought mm. that Belarusian history would would take off as much as Ukrainian history. Um, but anyway, I, I mean, I, I did want to talk about Belarus with you and you mentioned Lukashenko over and over again. So can we introduce his, him as a character to your memoirs? What, what, what was your initial impressions of him? Because he kind of came out of nowhere. And then of course, um, we can have this as a, as a political conversation about Belarus. Yeah. He did 30 years back now. He did come out of nowhere. He, he was a acting chairman of Commission on Corruption in the Belarusian Parliament back in the early 90s. And he composed a list of about 50 people he felt should be investigated for corruption. And this came as a surprise to Belarusians. You know, they hadn't really thought about the topic that much. Uh, one of them was, in fact, Stanislav Shushkevich, who eventually had to leave office because of some trumped-up charges of embezzling state property. Um, and Lukashenko used this as a lever to get himself noticed as a, as a possible election candidate. And my friend at the Chernobyl Children's um, Program, Gennady Grushevoy, the director of it, was telling me a story about Lukashenko that when the Supreme Soviet Deputy Chairmanship was up for vacancy, that you know, the Social Democrats, of which Khrushchevoy was one, were sort of thinking about a candidate. And this fellow called Lukashenko kept running up to them and said, choose me, choose me, choose me. But they didn't, know, <laughs> they didn't know who he was. And he was kind of ostracized. And they thought, you know, we don't need him. And then he ran, he ran for the office on this anti-corruption basis. And Vyacheslav Kevich, who was the prime minister, was another one accused of corruption. And very probably there were some, some issues there. And as a result, Lukashenko did win that first round. But I was there in 94 for that election. And I was hanging around the Shushkevich camp because that's where Grushevoy was. But sure. the other big opposition figure was uh, Zyanin Pazniak, the leader of the Bok and the Frank. And he was felt to be the main danger by Kevich. You know, everybody was watching what he was doing. Extreme nationalist on the right, as he was called then. 
And nobody noticed Lukashenko coming through the back. And he won by surprise. And he, he won in the second round quite convincingly over Kebich. And after that, he he was given a sort of six months grace period by the opposition to see how he how he got on. And after about a year, they were they were tired of him completely. He'd had a referendum by then. He changed the laws on language to uh, push Russian forward as a state language alongside Belarusian. Uh, he changed the constitution. He'd empowered Parliament, uh, sorry, empowered the presidency over the Parliament, and then in '96, you know, he he went even further and got rid of the Parliament, the old Parliament, completely, and changed it from 260 deputies to 120, trying to make sure that only his friends were included, and it just sort of went from there. He gradually turned into a, a dictator, and I think even by 1999, 2000. We saw the worst of Lukashenko. I would say even worse than today, when the brutality today is reaching the same kind of level as nineteen ninety nine two thousand, because that was the year that he should have mm. been he should have been reelected again. That, there that, were no elections. That that's interesting. I I mean I sometimes think of two thousand ten as a turn as a turning point. And you do mention this when the candidates were were arrested and put into prison. These were seven of the nine opposition candidates, but. You would maybe say there was there was a turning point earlier. I mean, in 2010, this is the moment that you, as the president of the Belarusian Association, get banned from Belarus for for I think yes. like five or six years. So, I don't know. This is both a historical question and a personal question because obviously you're cut off from a lot of your your friends and colleagues and working professionals at that moment in 20, 2010. So I, I don't remember what my question was, but it, it was about the turning point when Lukashenko is able to consolidate power, and maybe he's able to do that in several phases rather than just one. Yeah, well, I think that 1998 to 2000 was his, was his big crisis. That whole period was a crisis. And it was a crisis because he changed the constitution and he also started his term in office from the time the constitution changed in ninety six so that he didn't have to run for office again in 2001. But the opposition's view was that the his mandate ran out in 1999, and therefore the power should devolve from the president to the chairman of the parliament. The chairman of the parliament, Simon Sharetsky, fled to Lithuania. You know, he realized what was coming. The deputy chairman, Viktor Hunchar, who had been the campaign manager of Lukashenko in '94, was abducted off the street and was never seen again. And there were several other figures who were murdered by Lukashenko or his agents in mm-hmm. 99, 2000. I've not seen that repeated. I, I mean, people have been killed in 2020 by uh, people shooting them from, from a distance, but not abducted off the street in this secret fashion and murdered. But when I look back on Lukashenko's presidency, there are several incidents there that could be attributed directly to the president. Now, I wouldn't have done it at the time, but I would do it now. And one of them was the explosion in the subway in central Minsk in 2011, when several people were killed. And Lukashenko showed up there with his son about three hours later. And at the time, I wondered to myself, how on earth did he know that it was safe to go Mm. with this young boy? How could you possibly know unless you knew when the timing device was going to go off? And... That, for me, was evidence that all of these had Lukashenko's name on them. 
you mentioned 2010. Yeah, 2010 was a, was a, t- a tough time. But also yeah. 2006, of course, you had a big protest in the square, which Lukashenko said was a color revolution taking place in Belarus. Then 2010. 2015 was very quiet. And then 2020, where you have this mass grassroots upsurge, which has never happened before. So the question really is why it's so different in 2020 as opposed to these other times. And I think it's because this time you don't have traditional political parties running the opposition campaign. You have people from the elite itself who run campaigns, get arrested, and then have a surrogate in Sikhanovskaya who is running on behalf of her spouse, Siahi, who was in jail. And her campaign took off. I mean, her campaign with the other two women, both linked to the other campaigns um, of Sakala and um, Babarika, her campaign simply took off because it was so appealing to the population. You have three relatively young women, uh, not in politics at all. They're not really promising anything other than a more free environment and an end to this miserable dictatorship and ignoring the coronavirus and declining economic conditions. I mean, people are just simply sick of it. And I think that's that's really what what has changed. And and I know you've been asked this question a lot, David, about comparing Maidan and comparing 2020 and and the falseness of comparisons. Um, But you do have a conjunction in your memoir. It is understanding Ukraine and Belarus together and, and at a moment after a lot of uprisings and revolutions and Ukraine, back to the Orange Revolution, 2004, up to Maidan and through Maidan. So if the task in 2020, and this is both a personal question since you've written an academic memoir, but if the task is saying what's happening in Ukraine or what's happening in Belarus is not what has happened in Ukraine, then where is it useful to draw those um, comparisons historically and, and otherwise? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's difficult to make a direct comparison simply because Ukraine has been through so much compared to Belarus. I mean, Ukraine has had upheaval after upheaval from 1990. You could start in 1990, you could go early, but 1990 when you had the first so-called Maidan, the big protest in the square, which eventually got rid of the prime minister. And then 2004, the Orange Revolution, where, again, um, protests against election results that were clearly fabricated in favor of Yanukovych. Um, So probably the situation in Belarus is more comparable, certainly to 2004 in Ukraine, because it is a protest against election results. But it's also different in terms of the system, I think, because Yushchenko, with all due respect, was from the establishment. And he went back to the establishment. I mean, Kuchma, um, who supposedly had murdered journalists and things like that, was never persecuted. You know, he was allowed a respectable retirement. He's taking place in the talks um, on the future of the Donbass today. And the system in Ukraine remained in place. I don't know if the system in Ukraine, uh, in Belarus, is savable if Lukashenko goes, because he's so very much in his own image. He's taken the constitution, he's, he's destroyed it, and he's put in its place a new one that's really mirrored around himself as the president and the only figure who can unify Belarus. And this is the big myth that's been propagated, that Belarus is Lukashenko. And what the demonstrators are showing is, oh no, there's a very different Belarus from Lukashenko. 
and we don't want Lukashenko anymore. You know, we're tired of him. We'd like to have something different in its place. I would agree that there are similarities in some respects about where people want to go in the future. But there was only one source of power in Belarus. In Ukraine, there are several. And if you look at Ukraine under Zelensky, you will see that the oligarchs are still there. They're still very much entrenched. Sure. No yeah. one's removed them. In Belarus, there isn't. So if Lukashenko goes, there's going to be a vacuum of power. And that's a very dicey situation, no matter who takes over. And I think it will be a very interesting period in the next five to ten months ahead of how this will go, because Lukashenko clearly doesn't have the full backing of Russia. He has something, but Russia is ambivalent. And I think one part of Putin's thinking is, what comes after Lukashenko? What can I do to ensure that after Lukashenko, we have someone who's going to be supportive of Russia? Yeah, And Sikhanovskaya hasn't really threatened that at all. She said she respects the connections with Russia. She's not planning to do anything to break them. And I think that would have been the case with Babarika, who was the most popular candidate uh, in the initial part of the elections. It looked like Babarika was the most popular. And he is uh, a banker, you know, someone from the establishment and from a bank that is prominent in Moscow, Gazprom. Gazprom Bank. So the question is, where would he have gone? I mean, most likely toward Russia as well. And I think that is why it's different in in, in Belarus. Ukraine has gone in a completely different direction, or right. did in, in 2014. Right. Uh, we, we began by talking about your memoir, and, and it's clear to me that you haven't retired. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, so uh, if you're writing another memoir, or if you're writing a 2020s story um, involving diasporas, Ukrainian, Belarusian, academics, and professional communities, what 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 do you think will happen? I hate to ask this of historians, but it's a forecasting question. Do, do, you, do you see yourself um, further involved in Belarusian politics and Ukrainian diaspora politics in the future? Yeah, I thought you were going to ask that question. Uh, and it's you, the you, know, you knew it was coming. <laughs> I knew it was coming. It's the most difficult one to answer. And I would say, in, in short, no, I would not get involved in Ukrainian diaspora politics. And I've had my hands burned, let's say, by dipping them into the water. You can only go so far. And at some point, I think, my academic position contravene much of what the, the diaspora believed fundamentally true. That is that people like Bandera, Shukhevich are national heroes and their background cannot be questioned. Uh, John Paul Himka ran into this problem before I did. And I think one has to be uh, have some integrity as an academic and stick to what you find, no matter what the findings are. And if that turns out to be what people dislike, that's too bad. You know, it's too bad, but it doesn't mean you should change your position. And if you do, then I think you compromise your integrity. On Belarus, there are some nasty periods as well. Let's not mis mistake that. But the diff difference between Belarus and Ukraine is that the diaspora in Belarus, uh, A, is um, very small, and B, is not so nationalistic in that Many of the diaspora now are coming over now. I mean, there's more recently than there's been for a long time in Edmonton, for example, 
they're all recent emigres. They're not emigres from the Second World War period. So in the Ukrainian diaspora, you probably have a majority who are now sixth or seventh generation Ukrainians. Um, they are not politically active. Let's say they don't have strong views. The strong views are coming from the minority, which goes back to the post-Second World War period. And they're the ones with strong views on these subjects that they pick up in scouting camps or wherever, it doesn't matter. But the fact is, they believe these things. And you cannot really convince them otherwise, no matter what you're going to say. So there's no point in really trying to do that. I mean, you can you can talk about things with the diaspora that don't have this political resonance. That's, that's perfectly fine. And I don't think anything to do with contemporary Ukraine, for example, that I do is, is going to offend people in the diaspora. But if you go back in time, and start talking about, you know, World War II nationalism or the Holocaust in Ukraine or things of that nature, then you might have some problems. I am very interested in the in the Holocaust in both Ukraine and Belarus. And in Belarus, my most recent article is on the Trastyanets uh, death camp in Belarus, which I wrote with a, a Belarusian scholar. It's coming out uh, early next year in Europe Asia Studies, and this is a focus where it's kind of possible to do that in Belarus. And I think it's, it is easy to work there in many respects. But right. I, will, I will still work, keep working in, in both fields for sure. You know, I've always sort of tried to do a project in one area, then go to the other area for the next project and so on. And occasionally doing something on Russia as well. Right. But, do, um, do you, sorry, do you see yourself writing more books? I mean, would you be willing to write a book on 2020 alone or the current situation? I, I'm, I'm sure you will be asked if you haven't. Yeah, I would like to write a book on what's happening now in Belarus for sure. My, my current project is about, um, this is something that's not come up at all, but it's the last chapter of the book, is about Stalinist executions in Belarus in the late 1930s. This, this, is, this was the current focus. And I published a, a new article in Slavic Review on this, this topic. It's, it's relatively new for me. And I think that one is something I can pursue. I obviously I can't do it now, and whether I can get back into Belarus at the moment is is a, a moot point. Who knows? You know. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, but yeah, obviously this this one is a godsend. You know, for anyone who works on Belarus, that finally this, yeah. this upsurge of the population. I, I, how can I not write on that? Right, and and the fact that there's still a visa free regime, which hopefully can last since 2017. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yes, I heard of a colleague of mine who recently got in there, you know, even like a week ago. So I think it's possible to, to still go and, and do this. And I've taken advantage of this, this 30-day visa-free regime and, you know, not no sort of uh, encumbrances on you at all. You don't even have to register now in hotels like you used to do. But that could change. I mean, everything right. could change now as long as Lukashenko remains in power. There could be more impositions. But if, if there's a takeover of power, I think you could see a lot of changes in Belarus and, and all of them, all of them good, unless, of course, you get Russian involvement on a major scale. And that could happen, too. Yeah. And and thank you, David. And on that note, I think that's a perfect um, way to end our podcast today in New Books in History and the New Books Network. We're featuring today. Um, David R. Marples, who is a distinguished professor of Russian and East European history 
Um, still in Edmonton. I'm in San Diego. David is in Edmonton. Uh, David is at the University of Alberta. And he's written a, a wonderful memoir, which I'd recommend for anyone to read both inside and outside. It's called Understanding Ukraine and Belarus, a memoir by David R. Marples, published in 2020 by E! International Relations Publishing. Thanks, David, for joining us on the podcast today. Yeah, anytime, Steve. It was great. Thank you.